TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Odyssey celebrates Father's Day, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. It's Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBEN. Joe Beamer and Brenda Alacy with you until noon when Meet the Press will take over. Well, the radio version of Meet the Press, which is pretty much just the TV version on the radio. Hey, it's been another just uh, political crammed week. Everything from Roger Stone to Goya Beans has been uh, made political this weekend. We thought, what better way to address all this madness than bring on Kevin Hardwick and Carl Calabrese. So they will be with us the next hour talking about the craziness that's been going on with politics. First, we uh, have Kevin Hart, Dr. Kevin Hardwick. Uh, Dr. Hardwick, good morning. Good morning, Joe. And we also have Scott. I said one thing off air, but I was wrong. You're going to have to bring up Carl on the other pot. And we have Carl Calabrese with us as well. Carl, good morning. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, brother. Good morning. Nice to have you on board. Now, we've talked to you guys uh, a lot during the pandemic, anything uh, changing with these reopenings? How first, Dr. Hardwick, how are you taking the uh, the reopenings of the state? Well, so far, so good. Obviously, as a Canisius College professor, I have my eye on late August, early September to see what's going on there. I know that and, and also my wife is Buffalo school teacher. So I, I have a lot of apprehension about what may lie ahead. I think everybody does. It's uh, it's uh, in large part a fear, fear of the unknown. But in uh, but it's also fear of the known because we we have seen what this virus can do. And I think everybody should be rightfully uh, 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 wary of it. Carl, that question goes for you as well. How's the uh, reopening treating you? But steady. I'm I'm very anxious to have the gyms reopen. Let me tell you, it's just uh, you know trying to do your best at home with a, a couple of dumbbells and a bicycle uh, does not come close to replacing the equipment I enjoyed at, at the gyms I worked out in. So I am anxiously awaiting the announcement that we can go back to the gym. Carl, I just hope both. you don't refer to Joe and me as the dumbbells. What? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I know you've carried us a few times, so hopefully we're not the dumbbells. Uh, Question. I, I wanted to, um, Joe, uh, by the way, I didn't mean to cut you off. Did you have a follow-up question for Carol? Oh, no, I was saying uh, me as well with the gyms. Uh, I've been very vocal about needing those gyms to reopen. Yeah, no doubt about it. And it's not only great physical relief, but great stress relief as well. Um, Carol and Kevin, we uh, just learned recently that uh, Bishop Edward Kimmick, who served for eight years in the Buffalo Diocese, passed away. Wondering if you had any uh, thoughts on that. Carol, uh, you and I are both Catholic. Uh, Professor Hardwick, I'm not sure what your religious orientation is, but wondered if you might want to comment on what uh, Bishop Kimmick meant to the Buffalo Diocese. Well, I listened to uh, the last 15 minutes or so of uh, my, my business partner, Kevin Keenan's remarks, who, uh, you know, who obviously worked uh, with the bishop during some very difficult times. I, I thought Kevin opened up uh, the man's personality, his leadership, his impact on Western New York very, very well. 
um, you know, he was an, an everyday kind of guy. He had that certain personality, that warmth, that approachability that oftentimes, you know, bishops don't have. Uh, and he had it, and I thought he was, you know, he fit right into the Western New York culture very, very well and had to make some very tough decisions with school closures and parish closures and mergers. And, boy, that was a tumultuous time. But, boy, when I think the history of, of the diocese is eventually written, um, he will get very, very high marks for his vision, his leadership, and just his personality and leadership style in dealing with people. And Dr. Hardwick? Well, he didn't have a tough, he didn't have an easy task. Uh, it was a, it was a tough time. Of course, it, it hasn't gotten any easier for the Catholic Church. My son Brian uh, was in the final graduating class of St. Edmund's uh, Grammar School. I had uh, all four of my kids were there at some point or another. So, um, you know, that was a, that was a tough pill to swallow for this part of the uh, the community. But it was something that I think, in in retrospect, everybody acknowledges was was necessary. It uh, it, uh, it it wasn't the same uh, church uh, that uh, many of us grew up with. Uh, the, uh, the the number of uh, uh, students attending the schools, the number of parishioners uh, attending mass uh, has has dwindled through the years. And changes had to be made, and um, and to his credit, he uh, he stepped up and he made them, and he took the heat for it. Now, speaking of politics, I want to start with yesterday and move backwards, if that's okay. Move backwards through the week. Yesterday, we saw the president wear a face mask for the first time. Carl, I'll start with you. What do you think about not only the president having rallies as he was going to have in New Hampshire, the coverage of the Tulsa rally, but now the coverage of the president wearing a mask? And do you think that's the move going forward that the president should in public be wearing a mask more often? Well, it depends what you mean by in public. If, if the president is, is behind a podium and the closest person to him, a staff member, reporters are, you know, six, 20, eight, you know, 80 feet away. No, I don't think he needs one. I don't think it's necessary. Going to a hospital, however, as the president said in the remarks you played, where you're dealing with people who have health issues, maybe compromised immune systems, people who just got out of surgery, absolutely the right thing to do. No question about it. You'd be irresponsible to do otherwise. But uh, you, you got to – I don't like the one-size-fits-all approach. There are times to wear a mask, and there are times where I, I think it's just, it's just overdone. Again, it, it's a matter of social distance. And, um, and just basic risk management. And I think, you know, I, as I said, if, if he's giving a speech behind a podium, I don't think he needs to wear one. If he's walking by himself, uh, you know, and closest persons around him are six feet or more away, I don't think he needs to wear one. Certainly going into a hospital, something like that, he was absolutely correct. I think it really um, shines a light on what Mike Pence did when he did not wear a mask at the Mayo Clinic. And I'm so happy to see that the president did wear a mask. And I think Vice President Pence um, even said publicly he regretted not wearing a mask at that time. But guys, don't you think it's more symbolic than anything when the president does, in fact, put a mask on that people who support him might feel more compelled to wear a mask, as you point out, Carol, when appropriate? Don't you think that's more of a symbolic gesture? I would certainly hope so. I, uh, I I think I'd like to see the president wear a mask much more often than he does, uh, which is, you know, uh, since he has only worn it once in public, that would be a lot more. I, I mean, I agree with Carl when he's when he's at the podium, sure. But when he's walking up to the podium, just if, just to, to send a message to his supporters, of which there are many, that hey, it's okay 
to wear a mask. It doesn't make you less of an American to wear a mask. Uh, I, I don't know about, uh, Carl, about your Twitter feed, but mine has a lot of uh, 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 videos popping up of people refusing to wear masks and just some of the foolish things that they're saying. Uh, and oftentimes it's obvious that they're supporters of the president. They're wearing Trump paraphernalia. They're saying Trump 2020 or whatever. Um, you know, I, I think uh, it's proven. I mean, it's science. Uh, we all ought to be wearing masks. And I think it's uh, it's incumbent upon the to set that example, to show people it's okay. He doesn't have to wear it 24-7. I mean, I think those of us who have been wearing masks, uh, uh, you know, for months are, are, are getting sick of the masks. There's no question about it. And, and there's, there's fatigue, and we're letting down our guard from time to time. Uh, and that's why it's even more important that we have our leaders uh, showing us that this is what we ought to be doing. Because if we don't, we're, you know, this thing isn't going to get better. Well, as I've stated before, I'd rather wear a mask than a ventilator, and I think it's important that people continue to realize how important it is. Um, but guys, I wanted to switch gears a little and talk about the Roger Stone pardon. Uh, what was your reaction to that? Did you expect that to happen with uh, his jail uh, sentence looming on July 13th? Well, I'm not surprised, Brenda. He, let's be clear. He did not pardon him. He commuted his sentence. He commuted the sentence. Thank you. Yep. Stone remains a convicted felon and always will be. Um, but he did commute a sentence. I'm not surprised at all. Uh, put yourself in Donald Trump's shoes. The first two and a half, almost three years of his presidency, he is, from the, literally the day he's elected, people trying to get him out of office. Um, the Russian probe, two and a half years of being accused of being a traitor, a Russian agent, found out that none of it, it did not happen. All of the people who were going on television, John Brennan, James Clapper, Sally Yates, Susan Rice, all of them, going on television accusing Donald Trump of participating with Putin in winning the election and being a Russian agent, behind closed doors in congressional committees when they were under oath, all said they had no evidence of any connection with Russia. But then they went right out and lied on television. So if you're Donald Trump, you're watching your people basically selective prosecution. Because all of those people I mentioned also lied to Congress. James Clapper, when he was head of the NSA, the National Security Agency, lied under oath to Congress that when he, he said that uh, the government was not collecting cell phone data on Americans. Lie. John Brennan, CIA, lied when, when he said that the government did not use the Steele dossier to get the FISA warrants to spy on Carter Page. Lie number two. Uh, Andrew McCabe lied three times under oath about leaking sensitive classified material. All of these people are not only walking free, they're paid consultants for CNN. In the meantime, General Flynn gets prosecuted, goes through, has to go through bankruptcy, and now we find out, just released memos the other day, that the FBI knew he did not lie. It's in writing. They knew he didn't lie. They knew he wasn't a Russian agent, and yet they prosecuted him anyways. They don't want to scare people of any political party that that kind of prosecutorial abuse on the part of the government happened. People should have to pay a price for that. Uh, and so if you're Donald Trump and you're looking at that, you're saying, gee, there seems to, be, seems to be two different standards of justice here for my people and the other side's people. And so I think this was his way of trying to balance the scales a little bit. Uh, Dr. Hardwick, what do you say about the uh, Roger Stone com commute of his prison time? I don't know, Carl. You've got to admit that it looks kind of swampy. I mean, the, uh, the man is out there. Roger Stone is out there. He's been convicted of seven counts. It's a conviction that uh, uh, the Attorney General, William Barr, 
who is no uh, never-Trumper, certainly, uh, says was a good conviction. He stands behind it. Uh, he reportedly advised the president not to commute this sentence. Now, that's reporting. Who knows? I suppose it could be fake news. Uh, but it certainly seems to be where where Barr was leaning. It was a good conviction. And, and you've got Stone out there saying, you know, that he never – uh, he wouldn't roll on the president. He wouldn't. Uh, he wouldn't rat on the president. Uh, and of course, what he's been convicted of is tied directly uh, to the president and his campaign. And then, you know, then he gets this mutation. It certainly, you know, it certainly uh, uh, looks very, very swampy. Yeah, but what I would say is, if you go back, and I did a little research on this yesterday. If you go back in the history of commutations and pardons. Frankly, they always look swampy, okay? I mean, um, oh. Thomas Jefferson pardoned a, a political ally, which at the time everyone thought was a deal that that political ally would then testify against Jefferson's main political rival, Aaron Burr. Uh, and so they're, every time these are done, they're politi- they're, they look swampy. And, and, you, and, you know, one of my favorites are Bill Clinton and the pardons that he made on the way out the door. And, you know, that was sleazy, and this is not any less sleazy. It's the whole two things or, or two wrongs or 52 wrongs don't make a right. Let me say this, though. If, if today in, in uh, the Hill publication, there's an article by Jonathan Tully, very respected lawyer. I believe he teaches at Harvard, Hillary Clinton supporter, but very, very fair an- uh, analyst of constitutional law issues. And he makes the case that Roger Stone, what he should have gotten was a mistrial. Number one, the venue of Washington, D.C. is very difficult for any pro-Trump person to get a fair trial, given that 92% of the people of Washington, D.C. voted against him. And number two, as Trump talked about in the remarks you played, um, the forewoman of the jury was an active Democrat partisan who who did not disclose that to the court. And then during the trial, she was tweeting on social media that she hated Donald Trump and all of his friends and supporters, i.e. Roger Stone, were racist and supporters of the of the Klan. <laughs> and anybody else, when that came out, that would have been grounds for a mistrial. Um, and so, you know, that, and, and going back, Kevin, I don't know about you, but it really bothered me to watch how the government arrested Roger Stone. Now, here's a guy who's never been convicted or charged with anything. He is charged with nonviolent crimes. The government shows up at 6 o'clock in the morning at his house with 28 fully armed SWAT officers, a gunship helicopter overhead, and a gunboat in the canal next to his house. And by the way, CNN just happened to be there. And they arrest him under, <laughs> I couldn't believe it, it was government thuggery at its worst, because even the Justice Department protocols say in a situation like that, you've got a person charged for the first time with nonviolent crimes, the proper protocol is to call his lawyer or her lawyer and say, you and your client should be at the courthouse in such and such a time so we can, we can do the indictment. That was government thuggery by Bob Mueller, and at that point I said, wow, something is really out of whack here. Any response, Kevin? Well, it uh, look, a, a jury of 12, not just the foreperson, but a jury of 12 convicted him. Uh, my understanding is that the appeal was still pending. Uh, that, uh, that may have given him what he wanted. Uh, my belief is, or my, uh, my, my understanding is that the, the process for commutation, normally you have to wait for appeals to be exhausted. I don't believe that that was the case here. Uh, regardless, uh, it's someone who was, uh, who was claiming that he would never roll on the president gets a, uh, a commutation, 
something he sought from the president that keeps him out of jail, uh, certainly that sends a message. It sends a message to anyone else who might be or who might be uh, thinking of doing uh, uh, ill in behalf of the president that, you know, he's got their back, uh, assuming he wins again. Um, you know, the 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 2016 election was tainted. Uh, the Mueller report, you know, was not a scam. It did, did turn up plenty. It did not exonerate the president. Uh, Mueller himself said that. The report says that right out front. Um, and it did did show that there was Russian interference, and Roger Stone was in the middle of all this. Wait a minute, wait a minute Kevin. That's a, that's a threat to our democracy. Russian interference and collusion with the Russian agents for your campaign are two different things. The Russians have always interfered with not just our elections, but Western democratic elections. Their goal is to create mischief and doubt and turmoil within the, uh, the democratic process. They've always done that, and guess what? They're going to continue to do that. Ab- the report was clear. Absolutely, and there was, there was no question that the, the mischief was on steroids in 2016. Between Trump or anyone in the Trump campaign and any Russian, period. That's what it says. I read it. Uh. Carol, Carol, <laughs> let me ask you a, a question about um, the commutation. Even Attorney General Bill Barr and Chief of Staff Mark Meadows reportedly advised the president not to offer this commutation to Roger Stone. Why do you think they would say that if what you know you laid out the case about why he should have his sentence uh, commuted? What do what do you make of what their recommendation was? If in fact that's true, as Kevin pointed out, that's a reported. Uh, I take everything I read from anonymous sources in the New York Times and Washington Post with an ocean full of salt, okay, Uh, given their record on reporting so-called news that turned out to be fabricated. Um, But even if they did, I mean, Kevin mentioned about, you you know, you have to wait for the appeals process to go through. You know, if you read Article 2 of the Constitution, the, the powers of commutation and pardon and what's called reprieves is rested solely in the executive branch. It says nothing about waiting for appeals processes. Um, and so Nancy Pelosi can bluster all she wants about they're going to pass legislation to make sure he can't do this again. Uh, first of all, Trump would never sign it, and even if he did, um, it was challenged in court. Um, it's going to be very difficult to show why Congress suddenly thinks it has the power under Article II uh, that clearly goes to the executive branch. But uh, they may very well have given him that advice, but he has the unrestricted power based on the Constitution to commute and pardon people. And by the way, President Obama pardoned and commuted more people than the previous 17 presidents combined and still holds the record for the most commutations and pardons on one single day. His last day in office, he pardoned over 330 people. And I never heard a word out of Nancy Pelosi or anybody on the Democrat side. All right. Hey, way more to come with Carl Calabrese and Kevin Hardwick when we come back. Like Goya Beans, cancel culture, the Biden campaign. Yes, Joe Biden is running for president, if you forgot. And the Lincoln Project has been in the news a lot lately. We'll cover all of that after this break and news with Neil McManus here on Hardline on News Radio 930. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. The clock at four. Doncic. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here 
on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Odyssey celebrates Father's Day, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. WBEN. Welcome back to Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBEN. One thing I wanted to say before we get back to our guests, you know, they're talking about Robert Mueller and uh, things he said about the investigation. I think a lot of people still have questions of how in control was he of that investigation because when he was put in front of the American people, uh, he really fa- uh, had a difficult time answering questions or remembering where certain things were. So you question, again, this is from a point of view, this is commentary, not fact, but you question just how involved was he in that, uh, in that investigation. That's my two cents. Now, we have seen, it's, by the way, it's Hardline with Joe Beamer and Brenda Alacy, Kevin Hardwick and Carl Calabrese joining us this hour. And we've seen cancel culture in full effect Where did we see it the most this week? Well, with Goya. Goya makes great food. The CEO of Goya said at the White House on Wednesday, we're truly blessed to have a leader like President Trump, who is a builder. Well, since then, there have been calls to boycott Goya. Of all, place, uh, uh, of all places, including AOC. She always finds a way in the news. She had tweeted, boycott Goya, Goya away. Uh, pretty clever. On Twitter, and that has been a big backlash against Goya. So, Dr. Hardwick, I'd like to start with you. Cancel culture at full effect. You know, okay, you don't agree with what the CEO said, but now it seems like mostly Democrats, mostly those on the political left, if, some, if they disagree with someone, they go full boycott, instead of thinking of the employees that work for Goya and how that has a trickle effect on the economy and the lives of the, you know, the, the middle class to lower class people that probably work for the company. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is nothing new. It's just that it's on, it's on stilts now that um, we are where we are. I mean, everything is political. Whether it's Goya or the My Pillow guy or whatever, it's yeah. People are calling to boycott this company or that company. It comes from all sides of the political spectrum, uh, and and you know where you also see it is on Twitter and on Facebook. Uh, someone says something, everybody wants their job. Uh, many of the people uh, tr- try to identify these people going off on these rants, uh, you know, not wearing masks or whatever. And eventually you read where these people lose their jobs because someone has identified them. They go to their employer. They say, is this the sort of person you want working for you? They say, no, the person gets fired. I mean, we've, we've, seen, that, uh, we've seen that locally. That vice president for Roswell Park not too long ago made some uh, um, ill-timed or uh, ill-advised comments on Facebook about uh, Trump supporters, uh, and, uh, and it cost her her job. Uh, it's, uh, it's everywhere now. I mean, this is, it, again, it's nothing new, uh, but it's just so, more, so, so much more uh, prominent and profound now. I would, um, I would add to that and maybe disagree just a bit. It's, it's not new, but what is new is the ferocity of it. Kevin, you've seen this on the college campus where conservative speakers cannot get a forum. I mean, violent reactions to having people with responsible, respected, academic philosophical views are barred from giving their positions. This is very dangerous. 
very, very dangerous to a free and open society that values free speech and, and the clash of ideas to say, you can't speak anymore. I mean, Boeing, Boeing Aircraft just fired a top executive for an article he wrote 30-something years ago. And it was published, I believe, in the Wall Street Journal, a major publication anyways, that advocated why women should not be in combat. Responsible article, but, and at the time, probably 70, 75% of American people agreed with that position. They fired, he lost his job over that. This is scary, and this is, this is censorship by economic means. People will, this will put a huge damper on free speech. People look at that and say, I'm not writing anything. Are you kidding me? This could come back in years later, and I could lose my job. So this is, this is primarily a tactic of the progressive left. It's dangerous, and I hope it stops. I mean, maybe, we're, maybe we've reached the breaking point where last week a number of very prominent liberals signed a letter saying it's gone too far now. We've got to stop. We've got to be open. We've got to have free discussion and free speech. And they were mercifully attacked. Uh, I, I was going to say that, Carl. The signatories were, were attacked. Yes, they were. Uh, they were ravaged uh, for taking that position. So this is an issue we have to watch closely. And people on my side of the aisle and people in the middle have to start speaking up to the mob because the mob is basically one huge bully. And we all know that when bullies get their way, they overreach. When bullies are stood up to, they back down. And so it's about time, my party, and, and this is a criticism I have of the Republican Party, of not speaking out, the tearing down of monuments by mobs, vandalism of public property. Republicans ought to be speaking out very, very strongly against that and taking a stand, and, and they're not. They're silent, and, and I, I think that's a big, big mistake going into the election. You know, gentlemen, with this particular boycott, uh, it seems completely illogical to me. So anybody who would support the Goya uh, boycott seems foolish if you look at it and, and really delve into it a little bit. According to reports, Goya employs 4,000 people. Who needs more job loss, especially during a pandemic? And this gentleman has the right to say whatever he wants to say. Uh, when people are doing these cancel culture type movements, it makes them look even more ridiculous when you delve down and realize the impact it has on people who are just simply there working, trying to make a living. I think this one will backfire. I'm wondering what you both think about that. Go ahead, Kevin. No, about backfire. I mean, it may not succeed, but um, I don't. I don't see a huge, huge backlash lasting. You know, I mean, you, you think about it. This is going to be old news <laughs> in minutes. Uh, <laughs> right. News cycle just goes so quickly now. What we were talking about last week is ancient history. Kevin's absolutely right on that, but I guarantee this, there will be a new Goya minutes from now. <laughs> it's just the times we live in. Well, it was it was the My Pillow guy not too long ago, wasn't it? That's correct. So, yeah, and, and again, that was... A week, two weeks ago? A while ago. Well, it was longer than that. But anyway, it was, uh, that's, that's ancient history. Speaking of history, we've seen statues going down the last few weeks, uh, including here in Buffalo. We saw one removed. It was not toppled by an, an angry mob or by protesters. And earlier in the week, we heard an assemblyman say, uh, Sean Ryan, say that, you know, uh, statues and monuments, they're really only supposed to be there for a generation or so. And a few weeks before that, we heard the governor say that it was a beautiful expression. Uh, I'm paraphrasing his words, of course. Uh, I just want to know what you guys think of not only the toppling of statues by protesters. Again, if, if, it's, if it's petitioned and the government removes it, that's fine. But you've got these protesters, the mob, 
tearing down these statues and elected officials saying that's okay. Yeah, Nancy Pelosi, Pelosi said it yesterday. She said people will do what they, they're going to do. Um, that, that's, that's totally irresponsible. I understand that it, there, there should be a process. This is public property. We're all owners of it. Uh, it. No mob, no person has the right to go in and take it down. Now, if you, there's a process, you want to petition your government, you want a, a legislative body says, okay, we're voting to take it down, relocate it, that, that's the prerogative of a community. I've always believed, I te- you teach this in my course, communities have a right to define themselves. Uh, I have no problem with that. But mob vandalism against public property, that there are laws on the books, with a federal mon- uh, monument, it's a 10-year prison sentence, up to a 10-year prison sentence, uh, need to be enforced. And some of these people have to be arrested and sent to jail as a, as a message to the rest of the mob that there are going to be consequences for this. That's what Republicans ought to be saying now. But uh, uh, I agree, there's a process, and that's how they ought to be dealt with, but not by mob violence, because once a mob starts and once a mob thinks it's immune from consequences, there's no stopping it, and that's very dangerous also. Well, it was nice to see that it was done the right way in Buffalo. Uh, you had you had people coming together. I thought there were a lot of adults involved in, in that, and uh, and I, I think it set a good example. It followed a process, and it wasn't a, a mob toppling the statue. Um, it was uh, it was people coming together. And Kevin, I agree with that, and I think we would agree on this. You know, every country has history, and some of it's good, some of it's bad, and some of it's ugly. And you've got to teach all three aspects of a country's history. You can't sanitize it. You've got to teach the good, the bad, and the ugly. And to tear down these, all of these statues uh, is, is looking forward, I think, is a prescription for disaster. Because if you don't know your history and you don't know what went wrong and how it went wrong and how it was able to, to, to build up a movement for whatever, whatever the issue is, you may repeat that again. Uh, and so that, that's my whole problem with this, this movement of, of not just toppling statues, but the bigger message is, erasing history. And by the way, there was a great show done on this Friday from 9 to noon, on demand, radio.com, the Joe Beamer Friday show, if you'd like to check it out. <laughs> okay. A shameless plug. <laughs> uh, guys, what about the whole DACA ruling? Do you think President Trump has changed his mind on that? Were you surprised at the, uh, the shift? Go ahead, Kevin. I answered last. No, no, no. You, I, quite. Uh, I, I really, uh, I, uh, I'm not up to speed on the DACA ruling. Perhaps you could give me a hint, Carl. I, I'm not surprised because if you recall, the president had offered a path to citizenship for DACA kids a while back, a year, year and a half ago, and thought for a while he had a deal with with the Democrats in the House, uh, in the House, and th- they rejected it. So. He's already been down this path once before and, and was obviously showed his willingness to go there again. Guys, I want to ask you about the upcoming campaign or, you know, what we would be in the middle of if it wasn't for COVID-19. Uh, it, it seems to me with poll numbers continuing to, I don't want to say go down for the president, but not look great. Is it, and I'll start with uh, you, Carl, does it seem to you that the Democrat Party is content with just leaving uh, Joe Biden out of the media until November? Do you really think there's a chance that we won't see a presidential debate this year? Well, they're going to be content with as long as the numbers in the polls show that it's working for them. Okay, You don't fix something that ain't broke. Um, I don't think it's going to work for the whole campaign. I think there's, there's going to come a time when Joe Biden will have to leave his basement and come out and address issues and take questions and maybe even debate. 
although I think there's going to be tremendous um, pressure uh, not to have any debates on the part of the Democrats. But first of all, let's talk a little bit about these polls, okay? Um, I follow the polls religiously. I, every month, the beginning of the month, I go online and I check out the real clear politics average for the nine or ten key states that are going to decide the presidential election. My first piece of advice to everyone is ignore the national polls. They mean nothing. They're, they're a beauty contest. Uh, we should have learned that in 2016. You've got to look at the state-by-state -state polls to get to the 270 electoral votes. Um, the, the states I have, and Kevin can agree or disagree, is, as key states are Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, Illinois, Florida, North Carolina, Michigan, Georgia, and Arizona. In all of those states, um, in North Carolina, Biden and Trump are tied. In Georgia, Trump is up by seven and a half points. In the rest of them, Biden is up. But in almost all of them, except two, his lead is three points or less, which is margin of error stuff. Uh, in Illinois, he's up six points. In Michigan, he's up seven. Uh, very fluid, and as, as professional political folks, Kevin and I know that you really don't start paying attention to polls until after Labor Day because that's when people really start paying attention. And that's when most of the polling organizations do something very very important in terms of methodology. They stop polling registered voters, and they start polling likely voters, and you get a difference in, in response. Trump does much better with likely voters than he does registered voters. So I'm, I'm following this every month. Uh, it, it's been pretty steady, a uh, little uptick for Biden. But again, the numbers I gave you, in most states, his lead is marge three points or less, and, and that means it's a very fluid race. And uh, that's what I'm looking at is the state polls in nine or ten states not paying any attention to national polls. Well, Car Carl is certainly correct. You don't want to look at the national number. You want to look state by state. And pollsters uh, took a licking uh, uh, four years ago, and they're trying to revise their methodology and trying to hone in on who the likely voter is because uh, they, they had a difficult time last time. Uh, I mean, the other thing that uh, Carl is right, I mean, three and a half months is an eternity, and a lot still has to be decided, and a lot of those decisions are going to happen within the states. I mean, I mean, Carl, the whole question of the prevalence of absentee voting and mail-in voting uh, is going to be huge one way or another, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It changes the entire playing field. And you don't have those? answers yet no that's a that's a big x factor states that count i would guess well i'm pretty sure we're going to have it in new york right like we did in the primary yeah i think so i mean, I mean think about what we had in new york we could vote in person on election day on primary day we could vote you know uh, uh coming up to it we had nine opportunities to do early voting and then we did what i did which was uh, absentee voting uh excuse absentee voting hey i don't want to i don't want to get coronavirus let me vote by mail uh that's in new york now, is that going to happen in uh, in Georgia? Is that going to happen in some of these other states? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, that's as, that's as much of the battle as uh, as uh, trying to convince someone to vote for Biden or for uh, for Trump is to how are we going to be able to vote? Because that's going to have real uh, real effects on Election Day. Well, Kevin, as you know, and we do, uh, all of us in politics know, elections are always about turnout. And now the definition of turnout has been greatly expanded by virtue of the fact that people may very well, in a large number of states, be able to mail in ballots. That now counts as turnout, and that, that throws everything wide open because of the, the newness of it. And, Carl, going back to what you said earlier, you know, the likely voter. Well, you know, 
how do the polling firms determine who the likely voters are when you're expanding the universe because of mail, you know, mail voting? Right. In the past, that was easy to do because you want to be them. Elections, and you, you, you bought a list of people who have a history of voting in not just elections, but also primaries. And you can go back and look at that, and you can very easily peg the likely voter. But that was requiring people to leave their house, get in the car, drive to the local Knights of Columbus Hall, and vote. Uh, that's all out the window now. And, and all you have to do is look at the increase in school voting this year. You know, I, I was able to, I normally vote for the school budget in the city of Tonawanda uh, and for the board members there, but, uh, but now I could do it from the uh, convenience and the comfort of my home. So many more people did this year. I mean, the turnout for school elections was, was uh, historic here. Uh, and I think the primary uh, election turnout was up, too. Correct, yep. We haven't talked to you both since uh, the NY27 special election, and today uh, it said that uh, Beth Perlato is going to stay on the conservative line, that she's not going to run on the Republican line. Uh, guys, uh, thoughts on Beth Perlato's candidacy and uh, her decision to, uh, to run on the cons- uh, conservative line in NY27? Well, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I, I read the article, and, and it, it, it's not certain yet she's going to do that. She's making some noises and some movements towards that, but, but that could change. Um, apparently she, she gave a commitment to the party leaders that she would uh, get off the conservative line or allow herself to be taken off the conservative line if she lost the Republican primary. It'll be interesting to see if she, she keeps that commitment. Uh, if she doesn't and the party leaders of, of the conservative party keep her on that line, uh, that, along with what Kevin just mentioned, the, the mail-in voting, uh, could have major impacts on NY27 in November. Yeah, it's a it's a strange district, and and Carl is right. I mean, just because uh, that article is in the paper today doesn't mean she's going to be the conservative uh, nominee or conservative candidate uh, come November. There there are ways of getting her off. The the, the best way is to have her run for uh, uh, Supreme Court uh, judgeship down in New York City someplace, uh, and you can you can vacate the line for that, and then they would give it to Jacobs. Uh, Only in New York, huh, Kevin? <laughs> yeah, you know what? It's bizarre. It's a, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful state. Let me ask you. Speaking of NY twenty seven, uh, and we'll start with you, Carl. Were you surprised with the final poll numbers? Uh, I'm not going to say one way or another now because all the, the the ballots from Niagara County and Genesee County have yet to be counted based on what's been in the paper. Um, and so if, if indeed those ballots are counted and it turns out to be an eight- or nine-point lead, um, that's smaller than I thought, but it's still a healthy lead. Uh, but let's wait and see what Niagara County does and what Orleans County does in terms of those totals, and then I'll make a, uh, an analysis of what that says about November's coming, coming race. And Kevin, let me ask you, were you surprised the way Nate McMurray ran this campaign um, for the special election? Uh, you know what? Uh, I didn't, from the start, uh, give Nate McMurray much of a chance. I think that he came as close as he did. I mean, speaks well for him. And that's the, the fact that I didn't give him much of a chance doesn't mean that I'm down on Nate McMurray. It just means that that's the most Republican district in New York State. And, uh, uh, you know, Democrats uh, got a really, really uphill climb there. Um, I was I was surprised. I'll tell you why I was surprised by by the the final vote in Erie County, which was within a couple percentage points um, for the Erie County part of the district. 
Um, you know, Jacobs only won that by a couple percent after the absentees came in. And the absentees came in overwhelmingly for, for McMurray. Uh, that left me scratching my head. And at some point, I'm sure uh, uh, a lot of people will be digging into those results, trying to figure out what happened and what it means for the future for that district and for the voted in much bigger numbers by absentee uh, than the Republicans did in that race. Let's keep We've it. Got, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Brenda, go ahead. We've got about a minute left, guys. I, I wanted to ask you about uh, whether there will be a Republican National Convention in Jacksonville. It's already been changed once going from North Carolina to Jacksonville. And uh, there's a lot of talk about whether it will actually take place or will it be truncated in some way. Uh, guys, what do you think about that? Will it happen? Did you say truncated or truncated? <laughs> I like that. I think I think there'll be some type of convention, but I, I think it's going to be far removed from what we historically and traditionally see. It's going to have to be modified, especially if, if Florida continues with, with the, the numbers that are showing up in Florida. Uh, I, I don't expect to, to be watching a you know, four-night traditional convention with people you know, packed to the rafters in a convention hall. I just don't see that happening now. Yeah, I also suspect something will happen. I mean, I think they they have to do something. They and and that will, uh, uh, if if only for their base, distinguish it, distinguish them from what the Democrats are doing. Two more questions. Uh, first one, because I don't think either of you answered it. Will there be a presidential debate, at least one, before November, Carl? Uh, yeah, I, I think there'll be. <laughs> I think Trump wants three. I think Biden wants zero to one. Uh, but I, I think the pressure for presidential debates, I mean, it, it's almost become part of the fabric of a presidential campaign now. Uh, there will be at least one. And uh, if Biden doesn't consent to one, I think there, that will be a political negative for him. Yeah, I also believe there will be at least one debate. And there, there may be more. I don't, I don't see any reason why not to. Uh, I think that there's more of a downside for Biden in, uh, in skipping the, the debates rather than, than appearing in it. All right, and I wanted to ask you about this Lincoln Project. Uh, it's been in the news the last few weeks. They're now going after Tucker Carlson. It's a uh, group of former Republicans, some that were on the Bush administration, the McCain campaign. Uh, do you think they'll play a part in this uh, election? Do you think this could be worse for the president or work against the president more than the Never Trump movement in 2016? Carl, I'll start with you. I think it's the same people uh, under a different banner, uh, Trump's support in the Republican Party now is 92%. Uh, I don't think these people are Republicans at all. I think they are indeed part of the, the swamp that Trump ran against. Uh, and, you know, they're prepared. Uh, they're supposed to, they say they're conservative, but their hatred of Trump, and by the way, George Will is one of these people. I always like George Will, but his hatred of Donald Trump is so great that he's willing to say not only should the Democrats win the White House, but they should also keep the House and win the Senate to punish the Republican Party. Um, the progressive left legislation that would result from the progressive left Democrats running the White House, the House, and the Senate in a two-year period would be shocking because the left will always do what the left does. It will overreach. And in those two years, they could do a lot of damage. And if they do get control of all three levers of government, um, what I predict will happen is you'll see a flood of far-left legislation that will result in a backlash in the next special that will return one or both of those houses to Republican control as a blocking agent for what people are going to be outraged about. 
to answer your question, I, th- I think they, they will have an impact. I mean, the, the Lincoln Project, a bunch of Republicans or former Republicans, I mean, in addition to George Will, well, uh, George Will isn't necessarily part of the Lincoln Project, but you've got uh, Steve Schmidt is big in there. He was McCain's uh, campaign manager, um, for God's sake. So I, I, I think that they're, they're going to have a profound effect. They've raised a lot of money. They have some great ads, digital ads, that are running on, uh, on, on Twitter and Facebook, uh, and they're even buying some time in critical battleground states. There is a concerted effort there. And now they're talking about going after the uh, the Republican uh, senators who are up for reelection. So I think they will have a big impact this year. Republican can they be? Kevin, let me ask you this, because Carl brought up a good point. You, you look at the Democrat Party, and it is going more and more to the left. Do you think that hurts them, and they could benefit off maybe moving somewhat to the middle And then you wouldn't have that Republican voter who might not like Donald Trump, but is scared of what Carl mentioned would happen. And they're going to vote for Trump anyway. Do you think the Democrats have kind of pushed those voters away? Yeah, as a card carrying centrist, I've always been for centrist parties. Uh, but more and more, the trend has been to, to move to move to the left, move to the right uh, to try to uh, fire up the base uh, and win elections that way. Uh, and I think that that uh, on both sides of the aisle has had uh, uh, deleterious consequences for our uh, for our country. You know, the um, the Biden Sanders uh, group just got together and came out with a unity platform. It's it's a bear to read. It's 120 pages of single spaced uh, verbiage. And I'm trying to get through it. I'm, I'm about 25 percent of the way through it. But this is essentially a litany of the progressive left's agenda that has been advanced by AOC, by Elizabeth Warren, by Bernie Sanders. Um, and what Trump has to do is Trump has to come up with his own agenda for the future and how it makes Americans better or Americans' lives better. He needs to distinguish it from the Democrats and the direction they're going. And most importantly, he needs the discipline to stick to it. And that is a big question mark in itself is does he have the discipline to do those three things? Well, 114 days to the election. And one thing we can be sure of, gentlemen, that there will be a lot of fireworks. Thank you both so very much for coming on with us this morning. Thank you. Thank you, guys. And, Brenda, let's say we do it again next week. Sounds like a plan, Joe. Thanks. Have a safe week. Yeah, you too. Meet the Press is next. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. Back clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You said my world on and podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.